obviously uh, have to cut down on mistakes and, and just the level of detail we need consistently throughout 60 minutes. I mean, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna score goals. It's, it's defensively that we need to tighten up, and um, yeah, that comes with uh, you know being good defensively and, and bearing down and um, you know being physical, um, and getting off to good starts, and then needing to play you know a 60-minute game. We sit here and we celebrate guys who score big numbers and score a ton and all that kind of stuff. We don't talk enough about what we give up. That's the reality. We gotta prioritize keeping the puck out of our net. Yeah, they've been unable to do that, have the Toronto Maple Leafs, especially on home ice, as they drop an ugly one to the Ottawa Senators yesterday, dropping below 500. It's the Fan Morning Show. Ben Ennis, Brent Gunning, Sportsnet 590, the Fan. Defensive issues, mm-hmm. Brent. Both the defensemen, yeah, who we've talked plenty about, but yeah, it is true that you can, I guess, forego some of your offensive instincts and just play better defensively as a unit. But I mean, the question is, we've done a lot of John Klingberg talking. Yeah. Right, is it rightfully is, so? Well, that's it. Is it a one player issue for the Toronto Maple Leafs right it's now? It's not, it's it's it is almost never a one player issue issue okay but it is way closer to being a one player issue than it is an 18 player issue or 20 player issue however you want to look at it that game last night was indicative of a we've seen Leafs games and we've seen Leafs teams in the past where they just don't have it they do not they do not engage with that part of the game they're not stout defensively we've seen that before Mm -hmm. but we've also seen last night where by no means were they locked down defensively far from it but they were fine but it was the two shift laps it's the one bad shift in a period that undoes you and that's honestly what I saw last night the fourth line for how much we focused on them felt like they were on the right side of the puck every time they were out there last night like I liked what I saw for the most part from this team it's just the one shift laps the one moment laps and it happens one or two times a game and when you have the goaltending that looked like it did last night that's enough. I'm not just sitting here and blaming Joe Wall. Again, this is not a one-player thing to me. It is a having to have constant buy-in and not mm. taking your foot off the gas for a minute. Like, if we're going to sit here and ask ourselves what separates the Golden Knights and the Leafs over the last five years, I think a lot of people rightfully point out, oh, about 30 playoff wins, bro. <laughs> okay, and like, you're not wrong in that. But I think the biggest difference is that a team like Vegas – I'll even lump Carolina in with them. They just don't feel L.A. from what we saw earlier this year when they came to town. They don't take their foot off the gas. They're not dominating every shift. It's not like the ice is tilted completely, but they don't have the moments where they just fall asleep. And it feels like that's what this Leafs team has been guilty of. And you brought it up, too. It's not just the big moments that cost you. It's start a period. It's not starting on time. All that stuff. It does feel like this team is good enough offensively and maybe even improved from a year ago, right? Like there there may in fact be more secondary scoring to come from this group than we've seen in years previous. They may have found something in that third line and I think you and, and Luke rightly pointing out that Max Domi up the middle long term may be not something you can count on, but for the moment, yep, deployed correctly in the offensive zone, offense being created between he and Nick Robertson. Everybody's been bad defensively, but boy, John Klingberg stands above them all. And in that respect, like we all talk about, I was guilty of it before the puck was dropped Mm -hmm. on opening day, talking about the trade deadline for this team (laughs) and the clear need to add on the blue line. 
I mean, who doesn't think it's 99.9% certain that John Klingberg, and I don't know how his 10-team modified Mm -hmm. no-move clause is going to factor into this thing, but he does have one of those. It's not a full no-move. John Klingberg is not going to be a Toronto Maple Leaf at the end of the season. I can guarantee you that. Like, this is, I, I mean... It's been, I guess, worse than you could have expected, but you could have expected it to look something similar to what you've seen through 13 games this season. John Klingberg's going to be waving goodbye. So in that respect, Brent, understanding that that was always your position of need and that there are other things that like, legitimately look good around this Leafs team, specifically offensively. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if Joseph Wall can look like he's looked like the majority of the times we've seen him on the ice this season as opposed to what we've seen yesterday or yep. you know Ilya Samsonov can maybe not be the nine whatever 18 save percentage guy he was a season ago but can be somewhat league average I don't think it's unreasonable to think the Leafs can get league average goaltending out of those two guys no forwards look good offensively is it not, actually not the worst situation in all of hockey to have one clear area of need now granted it's an area where it's hard to add yep and and nobody's gonna be handing out defensemen no. at the deadline but it's it's one area yeah, it is. It's also an area that this team's been trying to address forever. I mean, they built up that blue line and then they watched a mass exit of it. Say what you will about any of the players. And I think to a man, every guy you list, there are people in this fan base who say, yeah, good, good riddance. Rasmus Sandin, gone. Justin Hall, gone. Gustafson, played a handful of games for this team, gone. Can't believe I'm about to mention his name. Jordy Ben, no longer here. Like, there were so many players who played, and we think of Jordy Ben as, like, some fringe piece, played 12 games for this team in the regular season last year. That You know, the amount of games that have been played in the regular season up until last night for this Leafs team, it's not an insignificant amount. I do wonder what Luke said there about the idea of Brody, if that can not yeah. fix him. There's nothing, there's no No, there's no you gotta fixing. do something. But if it's a stabilizing force, but... I mean, we, I mean, tell me personally, here's how I would expect that to go is TJ Brody goes on a pair with John Klingberg and then they get scored on in the first period. And then TJ Brody's back on a pair with Morgan Riley. So Sheldon Keefe can say, well, at least I have one pair. I trust. Right. That's how that would go to me. And that's where we have the criticisms of Keefe and the constant tinkering. And that's a conversation we can have in, I don't know, like three days or I guess we can't have it Friday, but Monday when we're recapping the two games this weekend, does that not feel very obvious as to what will happen with this team? That's the only move you have. And honestly, I hadn't thought about it because I'm just so hesitant to break up the one pair you feel really good about. And again, who are playing now close to half the game because they've had to. Yes. And again, you shouldn't like Benoit, Benoit and Lagason should thank their lucky stars every day that Klingberg exists because we're having very different conversations about those guys. Yeah, but the bar is, yeah, much lower for those guys. As it should be. They don't make 4 1. They weren't the first thing that was signed on the first day of free agency. They're effectively, you know, like zero war players in a in a baseball parlance and they have some utility there. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you. I don't see how you can see it fit. We've seen this happen before, right? Kyle Dubas had to make Nick Ritchie disappear and you know, he was making less money than Klingberg was. I at least I think he was. Uh there are pretty, pretty similar. So yeah, you're you're gonna see this be a topic of conversation, I think. I don't know if the Sweden trip is coming at a great time or an awful time. Cause how's he not going to be a focal point of it? Like, you know, I know they got a million Swedes on the team, but he's one of them. He's going to be super kind of front 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 and foremost there. So I don't know. I, I, it is so frustrating seeing it spiral this way when everybody could have signed it, kind of seen it coming. Two games remaining before the Leafs go to Sweden back to back against a couple of Canadian teams in different phases of their narrative. Yeah. Uh, flames are, 
very much in Sens mode where the Sens came in here desperately needing a victory and some of the heat turned down after beating their provincial rivals. The Flames, pretty similar deal. They lost to that horrible oh, yeah. Oilers team in the Heritage Classic. So, and, you know, their, their $10 million player, Jonathan Uberdo, is not playing in third period. Yeah, getting benched, yeah. By, you, the, by the way, um, do, I, I forget. Who signed that deal? Yeah. Same. Okay. Yeah. Same. <laughs> same guy that, that signed uh, John Klingberg. To right. yeah, well, Klingberg will be over this year. Yeah. I mean, he also signed Austin Matthews, though. Like yeah. we're, we're all sides. So you yeah. you, you, you got to get the whole story there with Brad for living. But yeah, it's been a rough start, a rough couple of months for Brad for living. Um, but these two games, I mean, there's twofold things happening here. One is you go out on the road and this is supposed to be a celebration of the Swedish connection that this yeah, hockey team has had throughout Salming, the Salming, oh, yeah. the course of its franchise's history, but also like the lack of games, like Leafs are going to go flames, Canucks, and then two weeks, and they're going to play two games, both in Sweden. So you you really would like the conversation to be a little bit more positive when there's no chance to change the narrative over that span. These are massive hockey games coming up over the next two days. Yeah, and, you know, I know he didn't score last night, but he looked so dangerous. But uh, could there be a worse time for Austin Matthews to play less hockey? Than he is right now. Like, I mean, he's going to go on another run this year. That's what goal scorers do. They go on heaters. But to have him play two games in two weeks when he's going at the clip he is right now, yeah, super disconcerting. Although for other guys on this team, uh, maybe maybe getting a little bit of a blow here, I not mean, the worst thing. Yeah, maybe it helps yeah. return Jake McCabe to health. It, Definitely. It's also a great point. Like, it's amazing how... Things can change your change your perception of the player. I think Jake McCabe was the the focus of a lot of yeah. correct derision early this season, but now it feels like he's the savior to some degree. Look at the bodies that are waiting to come back. It's Lilligren, it's Jake McCabe, and it's Connor Timmons. And, you know, maybe Lagos and Benoit, some people feel differently about them, but it's like, I don't know, all three of those guys could very easily make a case to be getting in the lineup. I mean, two of them for sure, and McCabe and Lilligren, and Timmons is your new Klingberg, as far as I'm concerned, at least I'd like to see it. Yeah, I, I wonder how hesitant this team would be to to make a move that early in the proceedings and, and how much pressure there would be. I mean, if you're talking about not... You know, like a healthy scratch situation for yeah. for John Klingberg. I mean, that is that's that's a decision that I imagine comes in concert with the general manager as well as the head coach. But Has to. That's that's a pretty embarrassing way to start your general well, manager tenure. If like you know, like fewer fewer than twenty games into the season, the most notable free agent acquisition on your blue line yeah. is immediately up in the press box. Yeah, and it's. I don't think it's happening Friday. I don't think it's happening Saturday because those bodies aren't ready like we just talked about. And I don't know, you put your hand up if you think they're going to make it the biggest scene possible in putting Klingberg in the press box during the Sweden trip. Highly, highly doubt it. Yeah, no Timothy Lilligren on the blue line for the Sweden trip would be quite a thing to have no John Klingberg yeah. in the lineup for these Got two games Got in Willie Sweden. at least. Yeah. Oh, by the way, we haven't talked about Willie on the subway. Yesterday. Oh, right. There was that picture of the guy who was sitting beside, like, uh, yeah, everyone's seen it. William Nylander wearing a very, like, shiny. It it looked like, it didn't look like a garbage bag, but, like, you know what I'm saying. It yeah. looked a little, like, garbage baggy. I, it was like a puffy coat. Yeah, okay, but so shiny. <laughs> it was clean. Okay, I, I mean, obviously, it's William Nylander. He never looks anything but. But, yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. If I, like, it, it just, it goes everything you know about. Nylander, right? That he's just wholly unbothered, and I love it. I, I always get a kick out of it. There was a story 
hundred years ago feels like now, but Dwayne Casey, he, it was like, he was stuck in traffic on the way to a playoff game or something, just mm-hmm. pulled over and was like, all right, I'm taking the subway because this is ridiculous. So yeah, story as old as time, Red Rocket, Matt Bonner. It's part of our city's history. Guys maybe, taking the subway. Maybe our next guest did the same. Uh, this insider brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit DonValleyNorthLexus.com. Raptors with their best performance of the season, arguably, in Dallas, handing the Mavericks their first home loss of the season yesterday, 127-116. Uh, the best game of the season, without question, for Pascal Siakam. Alvin Williams is today's insider, Sportsnet Raptors analyst. Alvin, thanks for doing this. Did you ever ride the subway to the arena? <laughs> no. No way. <laughs> Not a subway guy. Not a subway guy, man. I, I little, little uh, trauma coming from Philadelphia taking a subway. Didn't have the best experience. So anytime I didn't need to take a subway, I definitely didn't take it. Very fair. Yeah. Uh, I think if I, yeah, if I had a situation which, like, yeah, I'm putting... Oh, I, uh, my well, mind in, in, uh, in a situation about like having a negative experience, which I've never like, thankfully never had one. Oh, on the subway. Like you're indicating that you did. Uh, I probably would also think twice about the subway. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, that was, that was as quick as Sheldon Keefe's. Yes. Alvin Williams. No. no. Of, are you, would you take the subway? No. Yeah. But uh, to, we... yeah. John Klingberg. Are you concerned about his play? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was the answer by the way. Yeah. So, uh, all right. We're going to reconnect w- with Alvin. Um, as this Raptors team is trying to change their own narrative. I mean, it's it's a team with different expectations than the Toronto Maple Leafs, quite clearly, but a team with some pretty also definable shortcomings coming into the season mm-hmm. that they're looking to overcome in it being offense for them, where the Leafs, it's, uh, Leafs, it's defense. Mm-hmm. And early on in the proceedings here, now through eight games, they've actually looked a little bit more competent um, in the last couple of games, I mean, it was a, it was a pretty tough slog to start the year. I, I think maybe we should look at some of those early season offensive results. I mean, they got the win against the Timberwolves, but we should look at the way the offense looked in that first game a little bit differently, considering how good the defense has looked for Minnesota since then. But also maybe look at some of the defensive stats around some of the teams that they've looked better offensively recently against, including the Mavericks. All right, Alvin's back on the line right now. Hey, Alvin, yeah, no, I was just saying that this Mavericks team was off to a great start, but maybe not the best defensive test for the, the Raptors. What do you what do you make of how much better the offense has looked the last couple of games? I make a lot of it. You know, offense a lot of times is usually the last thing that comes together, especially when you're implementing a new style. So, you know, you have players that's trying to adjust. You have a philosophy that's being implemented. So it's, it's really tough. So it's going to come depending on, you know, who you're playing against. But every day, you look for something, you know, some improvement. And and last night it was just, you know, guys just really felt like they were in rhythm. They were they were timing. The timing was good. And and everybody's pretty much coming to their own. They understand that one night it could be someone else's night. And they it just they seem we heard it before, but it really seemed unselfish. The ball was moving around. It was getting up and down the floor quickly interior passing, extra passing. So I think I, uh, aside of looking at the defense, I like to see how the offense and what the mentality of it is, and it looks really sharp, and it looks like it continues to evolve. 
Yeah, and how important is it for just personally for Siakam to have a game where he's kind of at the tip of the spear of it? I mean, we know that's kind of been Scotty Barnes for the most part. And hey, like we can be honest about what it's going to be for this organization going forward. It's probably going to be a lot of Scotty Barnes, a lot of nights, but you're going to need Pascal Siakam. And, you know, he's coming off eight points against the Spurs, 10 points against the the Sixers. And, you know, a guy like that, he needs to fill it up to feel good about himself. So what do you think it does for a player like Pascal to, to have a night like he has last night? 31 points, 15 to 25 shooting, pours in 12 boards as well like I, I can only imagine what it means for a guy like that to just kind of get get back into the rhythm he feels he should be in yeah I mean it feels good I'm sure but you know you have a guy talented as Pascal and has done the things that he's done and improved the way he's been improving he knows that already it's a lot of times it's us from the outside asking those questions and starting to doubt but he knows like he knows that the work that he puts in he knows everything he gets the he gets the he gets the props from his his counterparts, his teammates, and things like that. I think it's going to be a big balance between, you know, what he sacrifices and how he c- continues to grow within this new style, as well as the coaches. I think the coaches they have to give or have some type of understanding of what type of player he is because he's good enough. He's a he's a he's a talented. He's one of the top players in his position in the NBA. So I think it has to be some type of marriage when you are having those two pieces come together. I've, I've seen it before. I've seen it playing with Vince. I remember when we just uh, got Sam Mitchell as a coach and we had a new new front office and things start transitioning differently. And I remember seeing Vince average 25 points going to 16 points. And I, I think that was the year he traded. So a lot of times it has to be an understanding of Pascal. He is that type of player where the Raptors are going to need his style of play. They're going to need his production in order to be the team that they ultimately lead. Scotty Barnes is doing a phenomenal job, but you still need that experience, that veteran guy who has the respect mm-hmm. from the referees and other teams. So he's going to continue to get better. But last night was a great performance just to remind everyone how good he is and how much he's needed. Yeah, he was great. And he attempted uh, 10 more field goals than Scotty Barnes did. Scotty had an off night uh, offensively after six consecutive games scoring in the 20s, only 14 yesterday. But I, I think... What has been clear from the outside is that Scotty Barnes is becoming the focal point of this Raptors team offensively, and I I, I got to imagine that that that's it doesn't need to be said, but it it is a sense that those Raptors players also understand. And Pascal Siakam is on the short list of of some of the the greatest players in in Raptors history, and is a champion, and was a key part of a, a 2019 championship for this Raptors team. How how delicate a situation could that be, though, with like? Passing of the torch maybe is too strong, but maybe not. Like a, a clear change in, in pecking order happening um, in Toronto. You know, it's interesting, right? You, you say that, and we know, you know, Scotty is the young player. He's very has some very good seasons prior to this season. Once again, doing a phenomenal job this season. But the way the offense is ran in this style, it's not like that it's just in the hands of one person, right? The ball is popping around. Scotty is just a unique player because you don't have to run a play for him, right? He can get the ball off the glass, right? And he can push it. He's a facilitator. So he fits right. He fits perfectly in the offense because there's not, you know, in the past, give it to Pascal or give it to DeMar or give it to Fred or give it to Kawhi. It's more just pop, pop, read and react. And as I've always thought and always said that Scotty's a player that you don't have to call a play for and he can impact the game. So more than just, him scoring, he's doing so much more. Rebounding the basketball, defending the rim, 
defending multiple positions. So he's always going to have the impact. So I believe what we're seeing is just his activity is just standing out so much across the board. That's why you can say you see a transition. But pretty much I just think Scotty is just, you know, somebody that's benefiting from the style of play and the new team's philosophy. Yeah, I, I certainly can see that. And yeah, it's it's really nice to see them kind of kind of blossoming, uh, especially, you know, like sophomore slumps. They, they can be a thing in this league. But yeah, definitely really nice to see them uh, blossoming again. Uh, somebody who I don't think anybody had any questions about them blossoming. You got a chance to see him, uh, I guess, last week. Victor Wembanyama. What is it like, uh, you know, like getting a look at that? We all see it from afar. I mean, Alvin, you've played in the league a long time. I mean, I can only imagine some of the size you've seen. I imagine it's still jarring for for you what was it like getting a look at him yeah I've, I've seen the size and i tried to explain to some of my friends it's like you know i'm not i wasn't in awe with the size like you've seen tall guys you've seen lanky guys you see freakish type of guys in stature like Shaquille o'neal like if you if you stand next to him and right. you just bump, what about yao yao like, always struck me as that too like did you did you ever play against him did you get that close yeah, to him yeah that thing was huge and he was a big guy I remember even being younger, Sean Bradley, like mm. like guys like that. Real tough, but this guy is just—he's—he's—he's he's, he's at that size, but with the skill level and the athleticism and the mobility of you know a smaller guy. So it's just—it's just—it's just amazing to see that. And then when you, when you really just take a look, and the numbers will be there. But I, I watched this guy—he get five block shots. Then I don't know how many shots he altered. And then you know. <laughs> player when you when you when you think you have a, a a matchup or advantage i'm sure there were some players who like no i'm not going to even go in there because he's going to come out of nowhere and block <laughs> so it's like i'm sure it's about 20 possessions that he actually impacted on defense alone by himself like so his impact of the game is just at, at an all-time high and as soon as he starts figuring it out like he doesn't know any of the players he doesn't know their tendencies yet when he starts figuring that out after playing against them one, two or three times in two or three years, it's going to be very, very scary. And listen to Popovich talk about, you know, they're not trying to implement him in their style. Mm-hmm. They're pretty much he can do, and then how can they, what can they put around him to support his strength? So when you have a coach and you have an outlook like that, he's only going to get better. And I'm sure he's being held accountable. So, it's going to be scary in the future, man. It's going to be really scary with how good this guy can be. Well, Alvin, you, you mentioned the pop part of it there, and I don't want to get carried away here, but one of the things I've always found most interesting about LeBron is that he never really clicked with someone. I remember when he went to Miami, you see Spolster and you're wondering, okay, maybe this is the guy, right? Like Kobe and Michael both had Phil. Wemby's going to have pop. Like, what do you think it will do to him to, and like you said, like obviously Popovich is not putting some system around him, but what do you think it'll do to start his career and, you know, who knows how long it, it flourishes there, but to get to work with that basketball mind, because that's always been one of the what-ifs of LeBron's career I've always wondered about, and, like, it's partially his fault. He could have stayed in Miami and worked with Spo or, or whatever there, but I, I've always wondered that about LeBron, and what do you think it'll do to, to Wemby's ceiling, just that he's working with Pop from, from the jump? I think it's so valuable. I think, once again, and I agree with you 100%, and that's always one of my arguments about LeBron's greatness. He never had that coach, you know, that the greats had, right? It was always him coming out of high school, 18 years old, and having, and I can't go through the list of coaches, but he's had coaches that weren't established quite yet. Spolster became established. Spolster was still a young coach, yeah, you know, right. at, at, 
at that side at that time of LeBron James and even now Darvin Ham later in his career. But LeBron's just a student, so smart and one of those type of players that it just showed. But if he could had like what Michael Jordan had with a Phil Jackson and Kobe and Shaq, but Popovich, this is this is so it's so valuable because not only that you're going to learn so much. There's stories behind it. There's that respect factor. There's, you know, other players that are vouching for Pop that can come and speak to Wimby and all of those type of things. So the value and the teaching lessons and just that relationship that he has is very, very valuable for any type of player. And I always feel every great player needs a great coach in order for them to take that leap because they need to be held accountable. They need to know other things inside of the game more than just playing. And I think every great coach, every great communicator, every good leader, he provides that. He or she provides that. So it's going to be, it's going to be special to have this, the situation that he's in and how he can maximize this opportunity. Well, and I'm sure Wemby can hold his own in a conversation about wine as well, right? Coming from France. That's a great point. <laughs> that is such a good point. I, I feel like they can probably go tête-à-tête, yeah, with the wine combo. Yeah, no, for sure. That's an excellent point. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, Alvin, thanks so much. Conversation. Yeah, all right. See you, man. Uh, it's Alvin Williams, Force at Raptors analyst. He was our insider brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit Don Valley NorthLexus.com. Do you know what I almost did there, but then the connection got a little fuzzy? What? I felt like that was going so well. I was going to give him a good morning on the way out. Ooh, yeah. It yeah, was we going done that. No, I know. We got to pick your spots. And again, you picked it so well with a guy who got punched in the head for a living <laughs> that he didn't even notice it when we did it to Mike Rupp the first time when you said good morning at the end of a chat. And you go, okay, good morning. Bye. Will we do it with Jim Duquette? Find out. Almost certainly not yeah. coming from me. Yeah, all right. Maybe, I mean, maybe I'm the guy to do it. Uh, former Major League Baseball general manager, currently MLB network analyst, joins us next as the fan morning show continues. Ben Ennis, Brent Gunning, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Morning Show, Sportsnet 590, the fan, Ben Ennis, Brent Gunning. MLB GM meetings are off. It's over. Everybody got sick. Everybody went home. But we got Scott Boris speaking to the assembled masses yesterday. Not so. the blue flu, but a flu of another kind. Yeah. Or something. So they, they, the headline item got taken care of yesterday in uh, Arizona. Let's talk to uh, Jim Duquette, former Major League Baseball executive, MLB Network radio analyst, uh, joins us online. How's it going, Jim? Good morning. Guys, well, how are you? Uh, doing all right. So this this Blue Jays team, they made the playoffs. They won 89 games. And you know what? That's That's more than some teams with similar expectations did. But, boy, got to the postseason, only scored one run. It was It was a very disappointing season for a team with world series expectations. Um, a, a lot of the core is going to be coming back, but some of it is not uh, most notably Matt Chapman. How much work is there to be done? Do you think for the blue Jays this off season? Like how much, how much, how much improvement needs to happen with this blue Jays roster? Well, I, I mean, you know, we've talked in the past about this. I mean, it, it as we saw in the postseason, the, the offense is the biggest concern. I think, their pitching stacks up, I think, well enough um, around the sport with any. In fact, I, you know, there's there's a lot more certainty with the rotation. Yeah, you can always find a you know back end starter, you know that that will give them some more depth. I think that's an area that they have to address. But but the offense is is clearly not 
um, what it needed to be. And we kind of saw this at the beginning of the year, and then it played out during the course of the year and then in the postseason. So I think I think that, you know, finding the offensive pieces, I saw what Ross Atkins said yesterday. I, I don't agree with him on the sense that there's not a lot of great options out there offensively. I know, you know, he may be trying to paint a, a, a positive picture that they're going to get you know, somebody that's quality, it's going to be hard to do. It's just not a lot of guys on the free agent market. I've seen the list of trade candidates and I'm, I'm questioning whether how many of those guys are actually available. So um, I I think there's a lot of uncertainty on how they're going to improve offensively. And I think that's my biggest concern with them here over the winter. How much should the the division you operate in and the kind of, you know, the, the team building cycle all the teams are in affect decisions? Because, you know, on one hand, of yep. course it should affect, right? These are the teams you're going to be directly right. competing with. But on the other hand, we hear executives in all sports say, we can't worry about what other people are doing. We just have to kind of stick to our plan. But looking around the landscape of the AL East, Baltimore, not going to be getting any worse. Tampa Bay, they always find right. a way. And the Red Sox and Yankees just aren't going to stay dormant forever. Like how much do the Blue Jays have to be cognizant that and kind of act accordingly well i i I always felt that um you know you even even though we've seen you know the schedule play itself out it's different we're not we're not playing as many games within the division you always have to keep an eye on your your division foes and and you know quite honestly we know that that the american league east is still going to be a strong one and you know how you stack up within your own division is going to be very similar to how you're going to stack up within the american league so you better keep an eye on this on the teams that you're playing because um, you're still playing them 13 times, right? So now does that mean you have to match them dollar for dollar? No, but, but you are, you do have to compare yourself with the, with the really good teams. Now the standard I feel is a little bit less in terms of the win total. You know, I think in the American league, we keep, we still see, you know, what is it? The wild card, you know, 87, 88 wins somewhere in that range over the last couple of seasons The national league's been, the bar has been a little lower. But I think that's gonna I think that's gonna even out here over time. You still have to to really try to reach that eighty eight win marker at the minimum, you know. And I think that's where you know if you're looking at it in, internally with Toronto, it's like all right, well, how good how good is this team compared to last year compared to the other teams around in that in that eighty eight to ninety win range? And you know what are they what are they spending? How how do you feel like they're improving versus your own? You have to you have to use that as a comparison. Uh, even if you're not going to match them dollar for dollar. Yeah. Uh, they won 89 games, got into the playoffs as the last American League team a, a season ago. Um, and the Diamondbacks, of course, uh, quite notably got in with 84 wins, losing their final four games of the regular season, made it all the way to the World Series. So it's a, an interesting time in the history of Major League Baseball. That, yeah, I mean, you'd like to win 100 games, not necessarily necessary. It is necessary right. for the Blue Jays to improve their offense, though, Jim, I think quite clearly. And yeah. I, I'm sure the Jays are are banking on some internal improvements. Uh, certainly you'd like to see a better season out of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and, and George Springer, right. but they're going to try and add some bats. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine, even if they do add him, that they're, they're going to be asking much out of Joey Votto. But, I mean, to that point, for a guy right. coming off shoulder surgery, hit a bunch of home runs in limited time for, for the Reds. But um, at this point in his career, uh, DH and probably not an everyday player as well. There's like the off field stuff seems huge when you're talking about one of the greatest <laughs> Canadian baseball players right. in, in the history of the game. How much can that factor in though? When you are talking about a team that needs real assets, needs to improve substantially offensively. 
And, and yeah, it would right. be nice to have Joey Votto. I mean, doesn't he need to be a significant contributor if you're going out and signing him to a free agent deal? Well, I, I think with where he is in his career and his age, I, I don't know. I don't think you can expect him to be playing 130 or 140 games. Now, he may want to, you know, mentally, but physically, you know, we see that with a lot of guys, it's hard to do. Now, may, maybe he'll he'll uh, surprise us in, you know, in that DH role. Maybe he's able to stay in the lineup a little bit longer. Like, there's a lot of things that have to kind of plan to, you know, playing 140 games or so, um, no matter you know what age you are, especially where he is in his career. Um, and and I don't think that the cost is going to be all that expensive. Like, listen, who are the teams that are going to be most interested? There should be plenty. But if he was prioritizing, right, going back to Cincinnati, there's still that door open, right? Their general manager just said that, uh, basically. And then there's Toronto. I don't know who else would really be able to compete with him. You know, he could he could choose to, to try to go to a team that has a – has a really good chance to win, but Toronto has a good chance to win, and so does Cincinnati. So I, I don't know if there's uh, more than a two-team race in this. If he could choose, and it usually comes down to about the dollars, right? So uh, for me, uh, I think there's a pathway for the Blue Jays to sign him. They should sign him. I don't, you know, it, there's a lot of other benefits in the clubhouse. Uh, what he adds, you know, to getting on base obviously in the community and what it means there for the, for the country. Like I think this is one of the easiest decisions for the blue Jays front office to, to do is to sign up battle. Yeah. And I don't even, I don't have the the quote in front of me, but for a front office that is, you know, pretty noncommittal about just about everything. I mean, you can't even get them to admit the the uniforms are blue on on occasion. They even were, you know, open to the idea of Votto and that, that in and of itself is, is pretty telling, you know, we, we can talk a lot about the decisions that this front office has to make regarding this team. And they're all very important, but I think a lot of people are kind of circling around one in particular, I guess one or two, and it's the future of Bichette and, and Guerrero, you know, there is a prevailing sense that if you're going to trade one of them, specifically Vladdy, this is the time before you only have one year of team control left. When you're looking at doing deals like that, how much bigger is it than just baseball, than just the front office? I mean, I imagine ownership maybe gets involved with conversations when you're talking about a player that is seen as kind of a face of the franchise. Like just how how hard a conversations are those to have? Because I imagine it becomes yeah. more than just a baseball trade. Well, yeah, I, I agree. It, it is. I think um, you know they're they're uh, the ownership up there. Uh, I think if you give them a, a, a well thought out plan, they seem to be relatively agreeable. Um, more so than other owners that maybe are more involved. Uh, and, and listen, there's good and bad in both of that. But I feel like you ha- they have a little more leeway to do what they want up there in Toronto and. Now, to, for for me, I, I don't see why. First off, I think you guys saw it, and and so so uh, so did I. He, he didn't have the type of year that you expected. It's not the ideal time to trade for him. Like if I'm an opposing general manager, I'm lowballing the crap out of the Toronto, and I'm playing up the upside. So so like I don't see why this is a tradable commodity right now. Um, and he's going to play at 25 years old, which is not, he's just starting to go into his prime. So for me, I'm not worried about him becoming a free agent. Toronto year in and year out should be spending at the high end. In fact, when I saw some of the, the budget numbers that they're trying to, to put the limits that they're trying to put there in Toronto, I almost choked yesterday because they don't, they don't need to be, uh, holding back. I mean, they, 
for me, they have plenty of dough, right? They, they should be pushing the luxury tax, uh, from, in my opinion. So, like, there's money to keep Vladdy down the road. You know, they already have enough problems with their offense. Trying to find a replacement for Vladdy is going to be really hard. So, I don't see him being moved. I don't see Bichette being moved. For me, Vladdy is a guy that play out this year. If he has a big year, uh, you can try to sign him up to a long-term deal. Or this might be the time, if you believe in the guy, which I do, uh, to sign him to a contract extension and keep him there. So I think there's some options better than trying to trade him, and that would be uh, keeping him or trying to sign him up uh, you know, to a, to a five- or six-year deal. Maybe, maybe it's not 10 years that he's looking for. Maybe you give him a, 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 you know, a, a contract, a first, we'll call it the first-generation contract, keep him there for uh, you know, the next period of time. Yeah, I was just going to ask, like in your in your mind's eye, like what would be the parameters around a potential Vladdy deal? I mean, forever it's been the ten year one that's been bandied about here, and uh, rightfully so. The conversation's yeah. kind of cooled as his play has, but if it's a five or six right. year deal, like what would you think the the numbers would potentially look like on something like that? Listen, well, you know, on something something you know that lower, you're going to have to pay a little higher. Well, probably a lot higher, right? Average annual value, right? So. You know that the hard part on that is all right. What is each book projected to make here for arbitration over the next couple of years? So you guarantee those years go into his free agent year. You know he's going to be looking for who knows thirty five or forty million dollars plus in those years. I wouldn't guarantee that, but you might have to for the shorter term deal. You know go close to that number and make him turn it down. You know mm-hmm. and, and that those numbers add up pretty fast. It'd probably be you know no, well north of a hundred million. But the alternative is he has a big year this year, and you're having to pay him 300 next year. Mm. So that's the trick. Like I went through this with uh, this conversation with Pete Alonzo. I do a lot of uh, pregame and postgame for the Mets. And Alonzo last year, I said to them, "Listen, you're gonna have to sign this guy up to around where Freddie Freeman and Matt Olson were, right? Which is about 180 million bucks." They kind of coughed and choked and like, ah, you know what he's asking for now that he's changed uh, agents to Scott Boris. He's got one year left, and he didn't even have a good year. He's looking for three hundred million. It went up a hundred million in one year. Is what he's looking for. Right? So, so you know, I think over time we look at these good players. You, there's a way to sign them up um, and throw more money. You're gonna initially you're gonna look at it and and choke on it. But I end, I really think with him in particular, like Alonzo, um, you'd be getting a bargain in the end because I believe in the upside. Yeah, I mean, so he's he's a Scott Boris client. I mentioned Matt Chapman, also a Scott Boris client. Scott Boris did his media thing yesterday. I mean, how do executives view dealing with Boris, who's become such an outsized figure in Major League Baseball? Like, do they roll their eyes in conversation? Like, is it different when you're dealing on a on a professional level that is not yeah. in front of cameras? Like, what what is it like to deal with Scott yeah. Boris? <laughs> He, he's he's a class guy. I've had a long-standing relationship with him. I, I negotiated a lot of deals with him. Uh, there, it's uh, difficult. He's the he's the most prepared. He's the most outrageous in in ways too. I I didn't see some of his analogies. Uh, I like one of his analogies yesterday. You know, Pete Alonzo's nickname is the polar bear. He said our negotiations aren't in hibernation with the Mets. Like he he does. He has stupid little 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 <laughs> statements like that, but I find them funny. He's he, but he's you know I, I've used this comparison before. If you were in a dark room and you had a, a dart in your hand, you're like, okay, where's the target 
you're trying to fit, you have a better chance of figuring out what he's looking for by just tossing it you know, <laughs> anywhere in the room and being as close as you can to the target. I, you know, he's, he's just that prepared and difficult to deal with. And I think you always have to go in with a, a strategy of here's where I'm willing to go. You know, it's going to end up stretching a little bit further, um, but you have to kind of sort through. He, there's a lot of noise when you talk to him. He sells the crap out of his players. He's really good at it. Uh, you know, he creates this uh, this big book and binder of every player that usually ends up going on your coffee table and you put your coffee mug on it, you know, in the morning. You probably don't read it much. But, you know, that, that's what he does. And, and every year the playbook's the same. But, I mean, he ends up, you know, getting the highest dollars every year. Yeah, I was going to say hard to uh, hard to argue with with results there. Uh, somebody who got a nice little chunk of change, not not Scott Boris money, but I don't know. As far as the manager's world is, I, I guess it basically is Craig Council. Uh, he gets that big big deal in Chicago. I mean, we're coming off Bruce Bochy winning another World Series title. Do we think this is a bit of a sea change, maybe, or a a reverting to how it used to be with managers, where it's it's someone with a touch more autonomy? I mean, you don't pay somebody the way you're paying Craig Council to manage off of a spreadsheet that someone else created. Uh, it's pretty interesting to me that he got that money. I, I like I like that point on, on the spreadsheets. I mean, that's what people feel like, you know, managers are these days, right? They're looking at the spreadsheets. They're looking at what the front office brings down. Um, but I, I say this, there's a lot of good teams that were in the postseason this year that did not. The managers, they, they, they looked at the information they got from the front office, but they weren't puppets of the front office. I think you're finding that that switch or change like you know let the managers uh manage the club they're the ones who have the good the feel for their team and in, in, in the dugout but you can arm them with the you know with the right and better information uh with council you know it's an interesting conversation because there's like there's so many different layers to it first off most managers would not interview for an open position for a position mm-hmm. if it wasn't open Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of conversation around the game of day. Hey, did Craig council do the right thing? You know, morally integ- the old, the old integrity issue. I can't blame him for going for chasing 40 million bucks. And the Cubs are the ones who initiated the conversation. Um, and he's considered one of the best in the, in the sport. So I think they, they really have a good one. I don't know if it's going to, I don't think it's going to be a trend though. I don't think, I don't think you're going to see, you know, multiple teams going to the high paid uh, salaries of the manager. Like look at, the Angels, no, Angels are probably an outlier anyway, but they just signed Ron Washington up. There was a limit. There was a limit on what he was going to make, whoever that guy was going to be. Wash, you know, was going back into that seat and, and accepted it. So, um, I, you know, I think there's that, you know, we have a really in the last week, the the balance. You got one of the lowest paid managers in the Angels, and Wash has got a experience. And you got the highest paid guy that we've had in years in, in council. So, it's you know, the answer is almost always somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And uh, I trust one of those organizations more than the other one to, to make yeah, the smart yeah, move. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not the one that's <laughs> sure. squandered a couple of generational players. Uh, Jim, I uh, right. appreciate the time. Thanks so much for doing this. All right, guys. All right. You got it. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thanks, Jim. Jim Duquette, former Major League Baseball executive, uh, MLB Network radio analyst. He's sat in a room across from Scott Boris where the puns are put aside and it's just mono mono And it's a guy who has the reputation and the track record of extracting each and every little penny out of your organization. And I, I know 
just personally, I would do very poorly in that situation. Oh my God, I'd be so bad at negotiating <laughs> with you. Forget about negotiating uh, with Scott Morris. Uh, Although, as soon as uh, Duquette said there's that book that he puts his coffee on, which mm-hmm. is perfect, that's exactly what you should do with it. That feels like a great niche like piece of sports memorabilia. Like if you're like, I don't know who mm-hmm. is in this city anymore, but if you're like a huge chappy guy, mm-hmm. having the the Boris binder oh, yeah. is like a coffee table book. Doesn't of, that feel like Darren Ravel like has like a bunch of, uh, your, yeah. that feels very on brand yeah, for him. Like but he's, he's got, got all like, kinds of weird he, stuff. Yeah, but he'd have like a thousand of them. I'm yeah. saying it's good if you have like your guy and that's it. Yeah, that's it. true. Uh, speaking of the Angels, yeah, they hired Ron Washington. Mm-hmm. Former Blue Jays infielder Ryan Goins is part of their major that's league. nice coaching staff he's an infield coach and yeah he's he's not aged and it's interesting man i, I remember when he came up came up at the same time as kevin pilar and kevin pilar had the minor league talk, tri- I, for a second i thought you were talking about ron washington and i was going to be floored at no, how old no, you were no, I'm not, like i remember when ron washington so came up i remember <laughs> when he told scott hatterberg uh, it, it, it is incredibly difficult when when that like we don't need to think about this, but like when when death comes for Ron Washington, oh God, yes. there are going to be a lot of people who close their eyes, and that's the thing they're going to see is him going. It's incredibly difficult. Like, yeah, the money ball image burned in people's brains for sure. You're saying so the person delivering the eulogy is going to say no. I don't. Is... I don't think so. I think the people there will yeah. have their own personal memories, but I think some guy in Chatham is going to yeah. go, "Oh, he did, eh?" Mm-hmm. And then flash to Chris Pratt's face being told it's tough to play first base. Yeah. God, I love that movie. Great movie. But I will say, for a team that won nothing and uh, was like, oh, yeah, we should great. make a movie about the Leafs. They they had some great regular seasons in a horrible division on the strength of, of some incredible pitching. starting yeah. pitching that never got talked about. I got is it. It's a tough one. Like it's a great movie, and Brad Pitt. I oh, like so honestly, good. when I heard that 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 book was being right. Was going to be adapted into a feature film. Oh, can I you thought. Imagine how? Oh no, I was confused. I was like, that doesn't sound like a yeah. movie to me. And then you're like, they, oh, but Brad Pitt's in it. Yeah, so. and they did it, and like somehow created some tension in winning a 20th consecutive game. <laughs> oh, the drama! Yep. Will they win another regular season game? A meaningless regular? Yeah, they did. Yeah. Unbelievable. Oh, wild. I, I love a, that movie. But it is it's a so good, good it's a good movie. Oh, Seymour Hoffman's so good too. Yeah, he is. He's great. Anyways, what the hell was I talking about? Oh, Ryan Goins is right. coach. <laughs> when I was when I, when Ryan Goins was called up initially, he came up at the same time as Kevin Pillar. And Kevin hmm. Pillar was actually like had a track record yep. of, of offensive success in the minor leagues. But I remember Goins came up and he hit the cover off the ball and was like Pilar, who had a rough time of it offensively. And then Pilar, you know. Remember, he was lifted. He was pinch hit from mm-hmm. uh, pinch hit for during a game, and John Gibbons watched him go down the tunnel and throw his equipment. Yeah, immediately demoted, and that could have been the end of of his career. But yeah, came back up. But I, I always view Ryan Goins and Kevin Pillar as as kind of contemporaries because they came up at the same time. Good to hear that he's got another gig. Apparently, a tremendous golfer as well. Mm. What a glove man, though. Yeah, I mean, it feels like that would relate. Good hands. To be an infield instructor, can you tell? Can you teach that? Can you? I I mean, they got two great ones there. He's just gonna be. He's just gonna be stealing Ron Washington's lines. He's gonna be like, it's incredibly difficult to play first base. That's all he's doing in in camp at at, uh, L.A. next year. But to my point to Jim about, hey, who 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 has a likelier chance of being emulated? 
the Chicago Cubs, who are no longer like the lovable losers, mm-hmm. like they're okay, they won a title, but also they've built something there again in Chicago. Like who who would put it past that Cubs team making the playoffs, winning yeah. the World Series next year, or the Angels? <laughs> who throw quadrillion dollars at Anthony Rendon, don't not just not make the playoffs with Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. Don't come close to making the playoffs with Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. Yeah, I might I might look at what the Angels are doing. Hey, they're doing the opposite of what the Cubs are doing and not paying their manager. I might be even more emboldened in my belief that what the Cubs are doing and paying the manager, giving him autonomy is the right move. It is the right move, but I also think we'd, can't get too carried away with it. Like a manager ain't going to fix things in that sport. He can stop them from being hampered. I think is the best way to put it. So like to get all your ducks in the row and then get the manager is what I would say about that. I guess the players are important. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I respect the real heroes, the players. (laughs) Sheldon Keefe can't tell John Klingberg to not be bad. I can't. It's on John Klingberg to be somebody different. Guarantee he's been telling them. (laughs) All right. We'll be back tomorrow. This has been the Fan Morning Show. Sports at 590 The Fan. Good Good morning. morning.